Now, it's a continuing pleasure to be here for these uh, three Sundays as we're looking at the book of Jonah, and we come now to the fourth chapter. We've been looking at it under uh, the theme, Jonah, a signpost for humanity, and we take that from Jesus' words to um, the generation of his day. No other sign will be given to you than that of the sign of the prophet Jonah. So a signpost for humanity and three subsidiary signposts. We looked at the first in covering chapters 1 and 2, which gives us direction uh, to a sovereign Savior and took the key text, chapter 2, verse 9, salvation of the Lord. And then we looked at chapter 3 and saw a signpost, which gave us last week directions to a real revival. Chapter 3, verse 5, perhaps the key text, Nineveh believed God. And today, we're looking at the last chapter, chapter 4, and uh, looking at directions to a compassionate character, and perhaps the key verse, verse 2, you are a compassionate God. Now, let's read this chapter together, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Let's hear God's Word. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? And Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine, but at dawn the next day God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Amen. We, we saw last Sunday that uh, chapter 3 was an astonishing chapter with the description of the uh, spiritual awakening in Nineveh. But in some senses, at least, chapter 3 is not half as astonishing as chapter 4 in its description of Jonah's reaction to quotes the greatest revival in history, unquotes. Because the chapter begins with these words, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became 
angry. Now, what's all this about? It sounds crazy. One evangelical commentator, Brian Estelle, has written a commentary on Jonah, and he has begun each of his chapters in that book with a quotation from the book Moby Dick by the writer Herman Melville, which I suppose it's uh, quite an appropriate book when you consider the content. And this quotation is particularly appropriate and would serve almost as a preface to the opening verse of chapter 4. Melville writes, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. And we sure do if we're anything like Jonah in any way at all, and, and we probably are in some respects. Now, the theme of chapter 4, or to be more precise, the twin theme is clear and obvious from the heading that the New International Version gives. Here we have Jonah's anger and the Lord's compassion. And these two realities are a bit like two threads which are intertwined in the chapter. And what we have to do is to try in this tapestry of the intertwined threads is to disentangle them and look at each separately because the former, Jonah's anger, serves to uh, display by contrast the loveliness of the latter, namely God's compassion. So let's look at the anger of Jonah. And in the narrative, it seems to me this is unfolded in four ways. First of all, the anger stated. Jonah's anger is a statement of fact. Verse 1, verse 4, and twice in verse 9. Now, the vocabulary, particularly in verse 1, is, is very vigorous. I'm told that literally it reads like this. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned into him. Simple terms, Jonah was furious. Now, the image that sprang to my mind when I read that was a fairly uh, familiar one showed by BBC Television's Match of the Day, uh, most weekends. That is, of the, the football team manager on the touchline and his reaction when a refereeing decision goes against his team. And uh, the cameras show his reaction. And invariably, uh, the individual goes, as we say, ballistic. Now, I think that image captures the terminology here. Jonah was absolutely furious. And furious enough to wish that he was dead. Verse 3, verse 8, verse 9. I am angry enough to die, he says. Now, Jonah's emotional state throughout the whole story of the book is one of real instability. And there are reasons for that. In the aftermath of the great traumas of the great storm, the great fish, and the great awakening, where he would have to work with, with tremendous stress and strain, Jonah, by the time of chapter 4, must be absolutely exhausted physically, mentally, and emotionally. He must be drained of all energy at this point. And in this connection, there's a similarity, isn't there, with another Old Testament prophet, namely Elijah. 
and the account of his emotional state in 1 Kings chapter 19 in the aftermath of his confrontation with the prophets of Baal and, and with Queen Jezebel, an emotional state which we are told led him to have his death wish. But there's surely something distinctively different between the death wish of Elijah recorded there and that recorded here concerning Jonah. Because Jonah's death wish was fueled, we understand, by fury and anger. And remember, anger is just one letter away from danger. So ran a billboard with this wording at a petrol station, or to be more precise, a gas station, because it was in the United States of America. And the warning clearly was against road rage. But what about warnings against God rage that we have here? The anger stated. Secondly, the anger explained. Verses 2 and 3. Now, essentially, there are two things behind Jonah's anger. First of all, there's, there's Nineveh repenting. And secondly, God relenting concerning his intentions to destroy Nineveh. And we understand it's the second reason that is the major one as far as Jonah is concerned, because he confesses quite candidly here that right at the outset, this was... This was what he felt was going to happen. He had a sneaking suspicion that God would relent, and that explains why he fled away from God's call and went down to Tarshish. He says that in verse 2. Here's the explanation. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. But that explanation is hardly an explanation, is it? It's more of a contradiction, isn't it? You see, he's saying, or he's showing, that he is angry enough to want to die because of God's compassion and mercy to save a wicked city from death and destruction. The very same compassion and mercy which had saved him, a wicked rebel, from death and destruction. You see, it's a blatant contradiction. How is it that Jonah has forgotten so quickly the Lord's mercy and compassion to him. Or for that matter, why do we forget so quickly that reality? For, for we do, don't we? We do. Now, this contradiction is heightened by his quotation of Old Testament Scripture in verse 2. He begins in the middle of verse 2 by saying, I knew that you were a compassionate God. How does he know? Well, if he, if he was acquainted with the children's hymn that we would, uh, we would have learned in childhood, he, he could have said, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he goes on to quote the Bible. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. There's a number of the Psalms contain echoes of this, but principally, this is a quotation from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And uh, the Lord revealed these words about himself to Moses. So what do we have here? It seems that we have a preacher in the dark about grace, though he's quoting words about grace. 
or at least Jonah's knowledge of the grace of God is not functional. That's to say, he doesn't live his life in its various aspects and actions and reactions and responses by the grace of God. It doesn't control the living of his life. It hasn't mastered him. And to be sure, of course, that is a, a lifelong project for all of us who are believers. But there is a basic inconsistency, a contradiction here in what Jonah is saying. And I, I wonder if we're meant to see a deeper explanation for his anger, for what is happening here. Isn't it that Jonah is quoting the Word of God against God in his anger and opposition to God at this point? Now, does that ring any bells with you? As far as the unfolding story of the Bible, as we get to the Gospels, Remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? What was going on there? Well, it was the enemy of God, Satan, quoting the Word of God, Scripture, against the Son of God, Jesus, in his opposition to God. In principle, I think, the same thing is going on here. I'm wondering if we're meant to see a kind of diabolical, devilish dimension to the irrational anger of, of Jonah here. And I think we are meant to see that because that's what the enemy is about all the time. He's always wanting to distort God's grace and distance us from it in the living of our lives and reacting to situations. And so in verse 3, when Jonah says, it's better for me to die, what's the explanation? Well, borrowing something from the New Testament, I think we can say, an enemy has done this. The anger explained. Thirdly, the anger compounded, verses 5 to 9. Jonah escapes from the city, and verse 5, he sat down, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. So here he is at this spot, this location, and further drama unfolds in God's providential dealings with Jonah, verse 6 and following, which has the effect of compounding his anger. Notice the three provisions that God provides. The first one, the Lord provided a vine, verse 6, as shelter. Secondly, God provided a worm, verse 7, to destroy the shelter. And thirdly, God provided, it's the same word that's used, God provided a scorching east wind, verse 8. To intensify Jonah's discomfort, in the great heat. So what's happening? A number of the experts tell us that very probably the vine or the plant was a castor oil plant. And we don't have to use our imaginations much to, to uh, see the lesson in, in our terms and in colloquial contemporary terms. God was surely in all of this, in His providence, prescribing very strong medicine for Jonah's spiritual ills and following it up with a counseling session when he exposes Jonah's anger as that which is an infantile temper tantrum. We talk, don't we, about children tossing the toys out of the pram, and there is a sense in which that is what Jonah is doing here. Uh, and those of us who are believers, this one included, has to 
hold hands up at times and say we, we can be childish too in our angry reactions to things happening to us that we haven't scheduled in or budgeted for or cannot accept. The anger compounded. Fourthly, the anger questioned. The first question of the Lord to Jonah in verse 4 is a general one. Have you any right to be angry? The second question in verse 9 is more specific. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Now, by this stage, verse 9, the honest answer that Jonah should have given was, no, I don't, Lord. I now realize that. So, please help me to overcome it and to exercise self-control, which you remember is, is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament for followers of the Lord. So, you see, in the Bible far more significant that our human questioning of God is God's questioning of us human beings. It started away back in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Where are you, Adam? What have you done? And the questioning of the Lord of other people goes on in Scripture, and it seems to me invariably not always, but invariably, this questioning of people by the Lord is constructive. It's meant to lead to something. It's meant to lead to self-examination, and the self-examination is, is meant to, to lead to a returning to the Lord, and it's meant to lead to restoration, as it was here with Jonah, surely. And the other thing one notes about the questioning uh, by the Lord of people in the Scripture is that invariably it's very patient and gentle. Don't you think the Lord has been very kindly and gentle and patient in His questioning of Jonah throughout this chapter? And don't you think the Lord is very patient and gentle in His questioning of ourselves when we, we lose the plot a bit? Time and time and time again. Isn't it the case? So gentle. So here's the anger of uh, Jonah. And even in the interactions that we've seen, uh, there is a certain amount of compassion that the Lord is, is showing. But we move to the second theme now, our thread. And this uh, really comes to the fore, because the anger of, of Jonah is, is the backcloth. It's the backcloth which displays the wonder of his compassion. Now, it seems to me the compassion of, of God is portrayed in two ways in the last two verses of the book. That's verses 10 and 11. And two things, and the second will be covered very, very briefly. The first the compassion expressed. Now, what I mean by that, expressed by the Lord itself. There's something wonderful in the Bible, isn't there? When you, when you come to the Lord saying something about Himself, self-disclosure, self-expression concerning His character, and particularly His love and mercy and compassion. And, and that's what we have here, verse 10. But the Lord said, verse 11, should I not be concerned about that great city? 
Now, I'm not suggesting here that uh, that means that these verses are, are more inspired than other verses in the Bible. You know that some versions of the Bible that people use in the past have the words of the Lord written in red, particularly the words of Jesus in the New Testament written in red. And well, that's fine as long as we don't think there's something more authoritative about these verses over us because the whole of the Bible is self-disclosure. The whole of the Bible is the revelation of, of God to us. But I, I'm putting the point that there's something particularly compelling that the Lord expresses this about himself right at the climax and conclusion of the story of Jonah. And the point made in verses 10 and 11 is very clear. It's, it's almost embarrassingly clear for Jonah and for ourselves if we follow in his footsteps. The point is a, a contrast of concerns uh, or a contrast of compassions because the word in the New International Version translated concern it could also be translated compassion, and it is in some versions. So here we have a contrast of compassions. On the one hand, we have uh, Jonah's compassion about the vine, verse 10. On the other hand, we have the Lord's compassion about a city of souls. Verse 10, the Lord said, you've been concerned or you've been compassionate about this vine. Verse 11, should I not be concerned about this great city. So there's a contrast of compassions. Jonah's compassion about a plant, the Lord's compassion about a people. Now, this kind of setting down of verses in this way, like a contrast, is a kind of familiar Hebrew argument or a familiar Hebrew form of reasoning which the rabbis took up down the centuries and, and used, uh, as we know. And, and we call it an argument or a reasoning from the lesser to the greater. Originally, apparently, uh, the argument was called uh, from the light to the heavy. Now, how light is Jonah's compassion here? And how light is the object of his compassion? It's a plant, for goodness sake. Now, I know 12 months ago when we had quite a heat wave, if we had plants in our gardens and we made sure that we watered them daily and tended them so that they would be kept alive and even grow. But the interesting thing here in verse 10, the Lord says, well, you didn't even tend to your plant. You didn't make it grow. So how deep is your compassion, the Lord might have said. How light, then, is Jonah's compassion? It's, it's like a featherweight, isn't it? You can imagine Jonah with a feather in his hand and somebody coming up, and with a simple puff, it was blown away. By contrast, how weighty, how heavy is the Lord's compassion. It's concerning a city of 120,000 souls. And the image that came to my mind, the illustration, was that of the Greek god Atlas who, who balanced the, the picture of the, of the globe as, as a great big circle upon his shoulders and staggered along with it. You remember the picture? And I'm, I don't think that's inappropriate here in the light of John 3, verse 16, which literally says, so loved God the world. Or 
So weighty was God's compassion towards the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. So there's the contrast between Jonah's compassion, how light it is, the way up here, and here's the weightiness of God's compassion for the city which represented the whole human race and the world. It's really a, a ludicrous comparison, isn't it? It's, it's quite a bizarre contrast that's set before us, and uh, inevitably it contains a rebuke to Jonah and uh, to ourselves. If, if we place ourselves in Jonah's position, it's a rebuke to our trivial concerns, isn't it? Our trivial pursuits. And when we realize that it it makes us want to say with the hymn writer, Oh, teach me, Savior, teach me the value of a soul. Never mind 120,000 souls, or 20,000 souls, or how many thousand souls there are in the Larbert Stenismuir side of Falkirk. Should I not have compassion. What can we learn about God's compassion expressed in this last verse of the book of Jonah? Verse 11. The original word rendered concern or compassion apparently emphasized two things. Firstly, it was the intention of a sovereign. Uh, this expression, or this word, or this term was used by one over those who are under his jurisdiction. So here we have an expressed intention of the sovereign Lord of the human race, who actually possesses all authority over all and sundry. Now elsewhere in the Old Testament, this sovereignty of his compassion is expressed. Remember the words, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Exodus 33 verse 19 and quoted in the New Testament, Romans 9 verse 15. So the Lord's compassion is expressed concerning his sovereignty to give. Now, what that means is that the the state of the objects of his mercy and his compassion don't really come into it at all. There's just a sovereign will to have compassion and act it out upon people. I mean, what was the city of Nineveh like? What did it consist of? Verse 11, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That's an expression that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 22, verse 24, and it means an inability to, to discriminate. In simple terms, it means ignorance, and here, ignorance of God and His ways. And these are those on whom God intends to sovereignly display compassion. Now, that's the description of Nineveh given right at the end of the book. What was the description of Nineveh's population given at the beginning of the book? Well, it was one describing their great wickedness, chapter 1 and verse 2. So put these two things together, and what do you get? Here's Nineveh. Here's the objects of, of, of God's sovereign compassion. 
ignorance plus wickedness equals absolute hopelessness. Without God, without Christ, without hope in the world, under God's wrath. And that's true. That's true. That's what the Bible says. But here's something else which almost transcends that. There is God's sovereign compassion upon them. So it's the intention, this expression, of a sovereign. And secondly, it is the intention of a sufferer. The word is a very strong word, and it describes grieving over someone or something so that one feels pain or expresses tears. So the Lord God wept over the city of Nineveh. I think we can make that deduction and put it that way in terms of what this word means. Well, here right at the end of the book is a wonderful Old Testament signpost pointing ahead to the New Testament, isn't it? For of course we know and heard in the children's talk that there was somebody else who stood outside another great city. Somebody else who looked at this city which contained uh, population characterized by, by ignorance and, and wickedness and hopelessness. Luke in his gospel describes Jesus coming into the city and records the famous lament in chapter 13 as Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you to myself, but you would not. Now, that's called a lament. It doesn't say that Jesus wept there but outwardly, but he probably wept inwardly. And as Anne was saying, when Luke comes to chapter 19 and Jesus approaching Jerusalem for the last time, it does say quite explicitly, Jesus wept over the city because the city didn't know the things that belonged to its, its peace. B.B. Warfield, the great American theologian of the 19th century, wrote a very famous essay on the emotional life of our Lord. And his conclusion to his study was that the phrase or the expression which most accurately described our Lord's emotional state in life was this simple one. He was filled with compassion. That's to say, his compassion reached down to the depths of his being. His compassion drew out um, pain from within and was expressed at times in his weeping and crying. He was moved with compassion. Now this is what the truth from this text at the end is telling. This is what God is like. This is the God of Jonah. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God who is present with us by His Holy Spirit in this gathering this morning as He looks upon us and looks upon His world. And if we really grasp the truth of this, this uh, text at the end, does not this give us hope for our cities today and our circles and ourselves? The compassion expressed 
And secondly, in just a few words to close, the compassion that's offered. What is the last thing in the book of Jonah? What is the very last thing at the end of verse 11? And the answer to that is a question mark. Now, I find it interesting that only in the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum is there a question mark to end. The only two books in the Bible with a question. And the doubly interesting thing is that in both the book of Nahum and the book of Jonah, the question at the end concerns the city of Nineveh. But whereas with Nahum, it is a, a question respecting judgment, in Jonah, it's a question respecting the Lord's compassion. And I take it, therefore, that the ending here means that this compassion of God is, is offered to those to receive it and take it. it. It's offered surely to Jonah to take it and to be transformed and changed by it. It's offered to the nation of Israel at this time who needed to be transformed by the knowledge of the compassion and love of God. And it's offered to the readers of this book down the centuries to the present time, including ourselves this morning, who must always be ready to respond to the Word of God when it comes to us and is addressed to us. In the end of the day, the book of Jonah is ultimately about the breadth of God's compassion and love. For the love of God is broader than the measures of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. And in the New Testament, the breadth of the compassion of God is measured by the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross at Calvary for his work in dying for our sins which was confirmed by the resurrection on the third day means that by faith in him we are saved we saw that lesson coming out at the end of, of chapter 2 we are saved. And the lesson here at the end of chapter 4 is, yes, we are saved to be shaped. Shaped into the same likeness of the compassion of God in our own souls and in our own conduct and attitudes. So the question at the end of the book, the question that the Lord poses, should I not be concerned, should I not be compassionate, is really the question that each child of God has to take upon himself or herself because of being joined to, united to the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore to God as well. Should I not be concerned? Should I not have compassion? to those around. So the compassion is offered to us afresh this day by the Lord. So will we receive it and rejoice in it and be renewed by it even from one degree of glory to another as we bear witness to the people in Larbert and Stenismuir under God's leading and guidance in the years that lie ahead.
May he bless his word to all our hearts and our souls. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty and eternal God, you read our hearts and lives like an open book. We thank you for that marvelous mercy, that matchless compassion, that wonderful love. We thank you it is holy love that you are righteous and pure and great and mighty and almighty. You are to be feared and honored. You're the one to be worshipped alone in this universe. We pray, O God, that as we receive your word, you might help us to take it and for your Holy Spirit to apply it to whatever is necessary in our lives. We pray, O God, that above all, we might uh, be deeply persuaded and encouraged and assured and affirmed to hold on to the knowledge of the certain triumph of your salvation in the world until the very end of history and then forever. And we pray that in the light of, of that big picture, you will help us to believe your great interest and concern that we might be controlled and mastered by that grace and love and the daily living of our lives as a congregation and as individuals. Lord, hear us and help us. We do pray as we ask you these things in and through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our only Savior. Amen.